Well, we have got Matt with us today from Diesel Creek. Matt does heavy equipment, excavation, dirt work type things, and he does all the repairs and maintenance that supports his machinery, and he films all of it and puts it all on YouTube and Instagram, and it's really extremely valuable and interesting content. He is showing the deep, the guts of machinery and how it works and how it breaks, and I'm just a big fan. So um, Matt is the type of guy who started repairing things as a small boy, like fixing toys and such, and and has followed that path to where he is now. And this is a, a great story, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So without any further ado, Matt from Diesel Creek. First of all, thanks for taking time out of your work day. You probably got 150 things on your to-do list. So thanks for taking the time. And my first question, you're, and we'll, we'll talk about the nitty gritty, but you're dealing with heavy equipment and dirt work and repairs and trucks and um, diesel, everything. So in, the, in that world, and maybe that's a couple different worlds I just rattled through, but what does good craftsmanship look like? And how do you think about craftsmanship in that space? Um kind of like a, I think it all kind of ties back into like the integrity thing and you know I've I was always told integrity is what you do when nobody's looking so you know it, there's a time and place to do the super ultra correct fix and go in and make things perfectly but you know the reality of things is when you're on a job site you're out in the dirt and the elements in the real world and you got bailing wire and duct tape you you kind of put it together so you can be a craftsman and in the field repair way, or you can be a craftsman in the, the machinist in the purest sense of the form. So it just depends on where and what you're doing really. Yeah, that's right. And with, with repairs, that's like mechanics can be notorious for, I'll say having like low to no integrity or maybe just scamming people because very few people are looking inside the block of the engine or whatever it is to, to know if whatever they're doing was done right. Um, but also, like you said, sometimes things do have to get done quick and dirty in the field. So, and I guess sometimes that's uh, <laughs> that is craftsmanship because it allows you to get the job done regardless of um, what happens along the way. Is that just part yeah. of heavy equipment, like things breaking? I, I only know a couple guys who are doing this, but is I'm I'm guessing that's just truly part of the job is fixing things on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, equipment just beats itself to death from the time you start it up to the time you shut it off. It's it's hard on itself, so huh. it, it just comes with comes with the territory, I guess. And like compaction equipment's the worst. I have a bunch of compaction equipment, and I end up getting it dirt cheap every time. <clears throat> Excuse me, because it it just beats itself to death. You know, the whole huh. process is it, it's vibrating to do the compacting work, so the whole machine is just rattling itself to pieces the entire time. So. Certain wow. equipment is harder on itself than others. Like by definition, it's like it's beating itself up as it vibrates, huh? Yep. yep. How do they? What do they do? Just put like big, like uh, rubber motor mounts, and just hope it does the job. Yeah, or is there? Is there have they developed something else? Ton of rubber isolators on everything, and they the idea is to get that just that drum that's shaking and kind of isolate the rest of the machine from that vibration. But in reality especially older stuff like I deal with because I don't have a million dollars laying around to go out and buy a new one. Mm -hmm. uh, the rubber starts to break down, deteriorate and harden up. And as that rubber hardens up, then you get a lot more of that vibration transitioning into the frame of the machine, which is not good for anybody. Yeah. So is it, and then it's as vibrating means like vibrating nuts and bolts loose, but also probably like wearing out and cracking joints. Dress cracks are a big thing um, on compactors. Yeah, as older machines you'll see from the, the constant years and years of abuse and the machines will just get cracks and steel. When you in places that you wouldn't even think there'd be any stress in these places, but it'll just spider crack from there and you got to catch it before it gets too bad. Wow. So talk about your how you got into this world, maybe just of repairing and fixing and dirt work. Did, were you kind of doing this as a kid or did you come from a family of diesel guys or what's your, how'd you get into no, this? No, my grandfather, whom I never met, was, uh, was a mechanic. So, you know, my dad knew enough to work on his own cars. My dad worked doing like brakes and simple automotive repair stuff when he was a teenager in a garage local to here. So you know, growing up, my dad was always that guy that was, you know, changing brakes in the driveway or something like that, but nothing really too major. Um, you know, he's busy. He has his own business. So it was uh, just what we needed to do to get by or whatever. And it wasn't any 
it's not his passion or anything. He likes old cars, but it was never something that was like thrust upon me. So I started playing out with Tonka trucks in the sandbox. And then I was, when I was a kid, I was addicted to lawnmowers. Anytime anybody in the neighborhood was cutting grass, I was going running over there trying to hitch a ride on their lawnmower and, <laughs> and, uh, be the kid in the seat. But huh. yeah, it just started there. I got, somebody gave me a push mower for free and I had tool sets cause I was always obsessed with tools when I was a little kid too. So rather than getting like the Fisher price tool sets, people started actually buying me just cheap tool sets or whatever. And it was, I, I was, I had the real thing. So I started turning nuts and bolts and I had no idea what I was doing, but wow. I mean, self-taught from that very young age, I was probably tearing engines apart on lawnmowers at eight or 10. Wow. So, yeah. Do you, self-taught. do you have memories of like the first time you got maybe one fixed or running for reels? And do you remember anything or maybe not the first one, but some, does something stand out in your mind of like a milestone on your Well, the first thing I I can say that I ever fixed was clear back in kindergarten. I had, uh, there were some toys that were like a, there was like one of those Fisher Price cash registers and like a little Fisher Price drill that had all these little gears in it and stuff. And neither of them worked. And I told the teacher I was going to take them home and fix them. And she was like, "Mm -hmm, you know, have at it, buddy. And I brought them back the next day and they were fixed. And I tore them apart and fixed them. Nobody helped me. And, uh, I showed her and she was like, okay, your parents helped you. And then later when my mom came and picked me up, she's like, no, we didn't help him. He, he figured it out on his own. So I've always been tearing stuff apart and figuring it out and putting it back together, even if it is with a sledgehammer at times, but yeah, get it apart. Man, I'd love to hear your parents and talk about this because they probably, they probably could go like several layers deeper. Like, no, really, he was really taking everything apart. (laughs) I don't, that's actually, I, I don't think I've ever picked their brains about it. I probably, I probably should one of these days, but yeah. Well, yeah, for them, it's probably just time. pretty normal too. It's kind of like, well, that's who he is. That's what he does. So, yeah. And I think in our family, it's more so than a lot of other families. It's we're those people that don't throw things away. You know, you fix it, you know, matter if it's a 20 cent, whatever it is, you know, if you can easily glue it back together, that's what we're going to do. Do you have some type, I, I'm sure this is, depends on the repair or the issue, but do you have a general, like strategy when you're tearing something apart for example i'm very much like trying to take still i I don't understand these things as deep so i'm always taking pictures literally every five minutes to try to put it back together are you kind of way past all that where you just kind of know if you take it go deep enough and then look for the broken part or what's generally like your strategy when you're walking up to something that doesn't work i mean it's really specific on what piece of equipment it is but yeah i mean you just start with the easiest things first you make sure you have x y and z and if the engine turns and it has compression you know that's that's most of what you need so as long as you got fuel after that it should start and then if it doesn't you start looking at the easiest things first or the first thing that would go wrong with that particular engine Hmm. Uh, just start backtracking from there really yeah Uh, and in every system is kind of the same and kind of different. So you got to look at like hydraulics, you got to have hydraulic pressure, you got to make sure the pumps turn and you got to make sure you have fluid, you know, it's, there's all those, the basic checklists first. And that's mm-hmm. basically, I just, I'm way past taking pictures to go into things. Yeah, Usually, sure. But if, if there is something I haven't torn apart before, I have no experience with. Yeah, sure. I'm, YouTube saved my butt a bunch of times now that I record everything. I'm like, well, I don't remember how this went together. And then I pull out my phone, start going through yeah. my videos on my phone, trying to, find that spot where I took it apart and like, nope, there it is. So <laughs> I remember having a realization really about fixing things and I'm a novice, but when it occurred to me that I should be looking for the, the part that's broken and I can't, I think it was like a folding, um, like a hide bed that I was fixing. It belonged to my grandparents. They, they hadn't opened it in like 15 years or maybe not that long, 10 years or like it's broken. And I remember when I was looking at it, it kind of occurred to me like, Oh, there's probably something in here that's like snapped or rubbed or, bent and i remember like kind of and we found it and i remember kind of walking away from that thinking like it's kind of obvious but like oh if something's broken try to find the actual part that's (laughs) broken and then you know what to fix and it sounds so obvious but i remember coming away from that thinking like and i've kind of taken that strategy for other things that you take it as a whole and you're like i don't know the whole golf cart's broken nothing i can do instead it's kind of like okay let's actually where is the exact, you know, part that's broken? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's people's different perceptions of like, if you ask somebody, well, what's it doing? You know, well, it won't start. Okay. But specifically, what's it doing? Does the engine crank over? Does it try to start? You know, it's like, I'm way past, does it 
run, I understand that it doesn't run. Right. You know, let's get specific on it and go right down to the itty gritty and yeah. you know, figure out what exactly it's doing or not doing. Yeah, I had a, another realization from a mechanic that I knew who was just an absolute master. And he described how for him repairing and he's repairing cars and, and race cars. He was really, you know, auto auto mechanic. But he described like just the the logic that he uses of if this isn't working, then it has to mean this. Basically, he just described how deep his understanding of engines was to where if something wasn't working in any part of this machine, he was able to, you know, work backwards and figure out. That was really uh, insightful because that only comes, you know, like where you're at. When you really understand deeply how all the systems on this machine work together to know that a little noise over here could very well happen, you know, on the other side of the machine over here and so let's let's look over there and then i got to that point without realizing i was at that point because i I remember distinctly as a kid being around those kind of people that were just so you know oh that's not doing this well that's got to be this so yeah i remember thinking man that's that's a skill level there and then one day i was just doing it and i was like "Mm, i guess i'm there now (laughs) so i don't claim to be a master mechanic you know i'm i'm self-taught and i figure things out as i go and i think being a good mechanic is just not being able, being afraid to dive into anything mm-hmm. and take it apart. I always say it's all just nuts and bolts, you know, it's got to go back together somehow. That's great. Um, I understand now how YouTube is, is a career in and of itself. In other words, how much work it takes for you to put out the content at the rate you do. But what, what, what's your career been like? In other words, you were fixing things as a kid and then at some point you kind of started working. So what kind of jobs and work did that lead to that then eventually led to where you are now? Well, right after high school, I got a job with a uh, landscaping company that at the time was turning a lot more into construction. And so that was the first time I really got to run, run equipment in like a, a sense that I was actually trying to accomplish something. Anytime I'd run, run it in the past was just moving it from here to there or yeah. smashing something with it, you know, very uh, non-skilled work environment. So I started with the equipment with them and I liked what I was doing, but you know, a job came along local that was supposed to be one of those local Holy grail jobs where I was working in a machine shop Mm. a half a mile from the house and they had uh, good benefits. And at the time I thought the pay was great, you know, but really what it boiled down to was I worked there. We did a lot of heavy mill and like steel mill and uh, coal mine machinery repair. So I've built joint miners from end to end, all kind of different, uh, mill stands that go into steel mills that roll the steel and all that stuff so when you're exposed to that level of heavy industry hardware i mean you you pick up a lot of stuff real fast and Hmm. and things at that level are done i'm trying to think of how to say it like it's the it's the sledgehammer and torch approach to things like there's not that Hmm. some things there's the finesse but a lot of things are just bang it apart bang it back together and you know, my job, things would come in broken. I'd tear them down, figure out what was broken. And normally if it comes into us broken, it's catastrophically failed. So you'd open Mm -hmm. up a gear case and see gears just ripped apart, laying everywhere. So you just start writing part numbers down of what needs replaced. I mean, it wasn't the, wasn't super hard to diagnose things. There was no (laughs) engine mechanics in that job. It was all just shafts and gearboxes and, you know, stuff like that. So the engine side of things I came into naturally, but the, that was where my heavy repair came from. Like the, the nuts and bolts and the, the big nitty gritty of mechanics, the hardware aspect of it. And then I left there and I went and did some other miscellaneous jobs and wound up uh, working through the laborers union on heavy highway construction and eventually found myself on the pipeline. So it was just, a whirlwind really it was one of those things i look back on and it seemed like it happened so fast but it was 10 years yeah so it was a it was a good learning experience the way i hit i hopped around and hit a lot of different um different types of work which gave me a lot of well-rounded experience in yeah. a lot of different fields. yeah that covers a lot of the bases what were you doing um on the pipeline what kind of work were you doing there i started as a laborer and then very quickly weaseled my way into a uh it's called a straw boss, but it's basically like lower level management. Um, so we were on a right away crew, which is a pipeline is a moving assembly line. So instead of a car coming down an assembly line and getting the wheels here and the cab over here, you know, mm-hmm. 
the, the job is of course stationary. You can't move land. So all the crews just go straight down the line. You start at one end and you just keep moving forward. So after they would clear all the trees, we would come through with bulldozers and excavators and stuff, and they would level all the dirt and try to make the right of way as flat as possible. And then they'd come behind us and start with the pipe and all that. Um, but I, I helped the guy who's technically the foreman on it, but we were, we were real good together. He basically treated me like another foreman. Um, and we shared the workload cause we were spread out across two, three miles, even more at times with, uh, usually like 10 dozers and six excavators, you know, talking big cat three thirty sixes, three forty nines. So, and then, yeah. And we had crews that were double that. I mean, it was, I had 50 guys on a call sheet at one point in time. That was just our crew. So, whoa, yeah, spread out, moving fast. Pipeline's a very fast paced, get it done kind of work environment. So, uh, you just figure things out as you go on the fly and, and do whatever you got to do to keep moving because of them when that dozers and hose are all sitting still it's costing somebody a lot of money they like to keep that stuff rolling no kidding yeah not to mention like getting the job done in other words somebody you're not getting paid till the pipelines like got gas in it or whatever anyway so the yeah. job's got to get done basically to make yeah. it someone happy wow so yeah, it was a learning experience there learning how to run manpower and keep guys moving and put out all the fires all day. That's basically all I did was drive around a company truck and keep things moving. Yeah. And that probably your, the skills from the machine shop and before, like you said, you kind of, I guess that's how you got the job, but you probably had a pretty seriously uh, useful collection of skills at that point in terms of the equipment and maybe, maybe running the men was the harder part or at least the learning. For sure. Just the headaches and the phone calls. I I, I do not miss, I miss the pipeline, like being out there, that environment was a lot of fun, but I don't miss my phone blowing up 800 times a day. You know, one drop of rain falls in the morning at 6am and you get 50 people start calling you. Are we going to work today? Are we raining out? I don't miss that at all. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. What are those, what are the pipeline workers like generally? I I mean, I, that's probably a tough question because everybody's different, but I've always just heard pipeline, working on the pipeline. And I interviewed a guy from the welding school who, you know, he's, he's training welders and sending them out there. And he described how they can make really good money. And I've heard like from you, it's a fast paced environment. So are most of those people like pretty no nonsense, like they're really ready to get down to work or are there like some knuckleheads who kind of show up like any construction site that make life tough? It's anything and everything in between. It's, um, you know, a lot of the people I'd say, majority of the people that work on those jobs are traveling around. A lot of them seem to be from down South or out West Hmm. and they travel around the, you know, the self self-proclaimed gypsies that'll travel around and chase the work um, because there's that much money in it. If you can, if you're a good hand, you can stay busy year round. Whereas a lot of guys like the local guys that usually come, uh, you know, they're just there because the union hall called them out. And they're on this job and they don't care how long it lasts. They just got another job close to home, whatever it is, whenever mm-hmm. that job's done. But the dedicated pipeliners, that's all they want to do. And that's the way I got to be after the first job because I fell in love with the work. And it's it's a whole, it's a lifestyle. It's not a job. Yeah. I'll say that. That's what a lot of people say. So these guys are living in campers. They're 10 hours away from home. You know, their families aren't with them most of the time. So yeah. there's... There's the partiers out there. There's the nose to the grindstone guys that just want to work and make all the money. And then, you know, there's the, the there's everybody. Yeah, it's that's a whole, that, yeah, that makes whole sense. Of people. Yeah, but that is different than a normal job site where everybody goes home to their house or apartment after work, and you have your life kind of formed around the, you know, this is a this is a moving more like a, I don't know, like a carnival, <laughs> you know, like a yeah. a moving. Um, like a concert tour, like a road. I've always said that, man. If you're on a big job and you because doing what I did on the pipeline, you'd get there usually pretty early in the job. Like oh, we've been on several jobs when the yards weren't even set up yet. So we'd build the yard first and then we'd go out onto the pipeline and start actually moving dirt and doing all that. But wow. you can watch the town transform because these are big jobs that are employing a couple thousand people at times. Yeah. Um, so you watch the town change around what we're doing. You move in and moving out. Things are people's perception of you because right. you're stuck there with them. I mean, there's, the people, people get to know you, people love you or hate you. You know, um, I did a big job out in Lancaster PA called the Atlantic sunrise. And, uh, it was a, it was one of those first jobs that really got protested. 
So the very first piece of equipment we dropped off on the ground, there was all these protesters swarmed it and chained themselves to it. The police were all involved. It was, it was an experience. And that's, you know, that town was divided. Half the people there loved you, half the people there hated you. And you had to watch where you went to, to eat and not wouldn't, wouldn't make a big advertisement through your pipeline or if you didn't (laughs) want to get your food spit in or something. Yeah, no kidding. You are like the embodiment of this like flashpoint in, in, uh, in these protests yeah. minds. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Wow. Um, so you, you started putting videos up quite a while ago and then I noticed there's, you kind of took a few years and didn't post. So what, what caused you to kind of put those first videos up and then, and now you're just going nuts, uh, with it. So t- let's talk about YouTube, even though I know that some of my listeners hate when I do that, but I can't help it. It's like, that's my whole world right now. And so, well, I mean, I can say it's really the only thing I'm, uh, notable for at this point. So, uh, <laughs> I started back in high school because I was real big into riding dirt bikes and uh, quads and all that kind of stuff. And I looked at all these other pro athletes, whereas what my idols were, I guess I never really got into like football or anything, but those dirt bike guys, that was, that was right up my alley. Um, so I rode dirt bikes and just made crappy videos, not well edited, but back at the time, YouTube was a much different place. You didn't have these high caliber videos. We were working off of what Sony beta cams basically. And, uh, they were just garbage videos, but it was just something fun for me to do and document me having fun with my buddies. And I don't know. I, I did actually get to the point where I got monetized back then. And we're talking 2010 or 11, maybe I think 12 was probably the last time I posted. Um, but I was monetized, but I was making maybe five bucks a month, if that. So, I mean, no real money to speak mm-hmm. of, but it was just cool to tell people, oh, yeah, I make money off of YouTube. And back then, right. no one had heard of that. Yeah. I mean, that was brand new. Totally. Um, but yeah, I got jobs and, and we discussed the jobs. Those take a lot of time. You don't have time to go play with your buddies and ride dirt bikes and do all that stuff. So yeah. I just kind of let it go. And uh, I don't know, years and years passed. And then the way the pipeline works is it's feast and famine. You'll be working seven days a week, 14 hours a day. And then you work yourself straight out of a job. So the moment the job's over, it's here's your money. See you later. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you got to go look for another job to start up. And sometimes you can go right to the next job. Sometimes it's six months between jobs. So I had this free time. And over the years, I'd started collecting equipment just to start it out. And I, I tried to say it was going to be a money making prospect, but I bought a skid steer to build a motocross track, basically. <laughs> cool. And that's why I. I weaseled myself into saying that it was money well spent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I bought that and I've been collecting pieces over the years. And uh, the last big job I was on that one out in Lancaster PA, I had uh, started watching other people on YouTube that were doing excavation work and the side jobs that I was doing when I was off. Yeah. So I figured, well, these guys are doing it and they're getting a subscriber base out of it and they have to be making some money at it. So I figured I'm doing it. I might as well turn the camera on and record it. Yeah. And what I underestimated at that time was how much time goes into setting up cameras, tearing down cameras and editing videos. I really, I hadn't edited a video at all at that point. Everything I'd done in the past was just take the clip, put it in line with the rest of them and process it. Like it was no editing like I do now. So I quickly learned that there's a lot that goes on in making videos watchable. So um, yeah, I just took that same channel that I had had back then because I did have like seven or 800 subscribers at that point and said, well, I'm not going to throw these guys away. I'm going to cheat and use wow. every uh, tool I have at my disposal to try to boost myself up. So I don't know if any of those original ones are even still watching, but I, <laughs> I took what I had, changed the name and started going with it. And wow. the first few videos didn't do anything. You know, it's, I'm sure you guys remember starting out, there's not not much traction. It's hard to get anywhere. Yeah. Um, but I think at one point I bought this new truck and all of a sudden that truck, for whatever reason, took off on YouTube. That was hot. And it, it got a hundred thousand views, which at the time I was, my mind couldn't even wrap around a hundred thousand views. Yeah. So that, that's what got my, uh, YouTube channel really What was that like for you? Out. What were you thinking when that video was like taken off? I don't even know it. I was in a machine running, loading trucks, you know, uh, at work. And my buddy called me cause he, he always thought that it'd be cool if I, you know, made it somewhere with this. Yeah. He called me, he said, Hey, are, have you been watching your channel? I was like, no, I'm at work. I'm 
running a machine. He yeah. said, dude, you got to look, it's, it's going crazy. It's got a hundred thousand views now. And it's, you know, yesterday it had 20. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I said, no kidding. And so what I did, I said, well, people are obviously, they want to see more on this truck. I thought, well, I'll give them whatever I can. So I just started making some more videos about it and trying to feed the fire as long as I had a spark. Yeah. It seemed to have worked. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, was it hard for you to talk in front of a camera and like set it up and like, kind of like get over that hill? Yeah. As, as much as I probably look like it now, I'm not a people person. Like I, yeah. I appreciate my fans and subscribers and all that. And I could have a conversation like this all day long, but just being that outgoing bubbly person that jumps in front of a camera and starts acting like a goof a little bit. Yeah. I, no, I like to stay on the backside and, <laughs> yep. and just point to things, but yeah, that's, you know, those videos that's don't ever seem to do well. Yeah. Like on my fam, like even in the family, if like our family's all in one room, I'm perfectly content to just be like on the sideline and yeah. re relax. I'm not really on our channel that much. So I'm, I'm kind of lucky. I don't have to be in the crosshairs that you are, but how, so what, what happened just like after practice, you kind of got better um, and got over it or yeah, the more I did it, the more necessary I thought that it was. And yeah, I just worked myself and started doing it and I still like to this day I got a buddy that goes out and helps me on some of these bigger equipment rescues. Yeah. And I pick up the camera and I look at him and I'm like time to make an ass of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I feel still feel stupid doing it, but you yeah. know what if it's a way to make a living and not have to go to work every day, I'm all about it. Yeah, you know, I remember being a kid and or even an adult, it's like you'd ask that question like would you whatever, would you eat this baby bird for 50 bucks or something, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know. So there's like, there's a line where you're like, I'd probably do that. And that's yeah. with putting yourself out there publicly. It's a little bit the same question. Like, I don't think I want to do that, but it's like, well, if you could make a living and work from home, would you do it then? It's like, well, actually, yeah, maybe I would. Maybe it yeah, doesn't seem like a bad trade off to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's talk about equipment now a little bit in particular. I don't know a lot about it, but um, can you divide or how do you think about equipment brands are there like premium and luxury brands and like cheap like hyundai kia style vans no offense to hyundai or kia um is there times where like with vehicles and cars for example like the 80s like I, it seems like nothing really good came from the whole industry in those years with equipment are there blocks of time where it's just like don't bother was there a golden age when certain machines were made that still to this day are the best, but how, how do you paint like the landscape of heavy equipment for someone who really doesn't know much about it? I mean, there's a lot to unpack in that question, but, uh, ultimately I always say that brand doesn't mean much. Uh, if it depends on what you're doing with your equipment, um, if you're in business for yourself and you need that equipment all day, every day, you should find something that the parts are readily available for. Because like we talked about in the beginning, machines just destroy themselves the moment you start them up. So like a dealer close by, a good dealer network and parts support are a big thing if you're going to be in business for yourself. Now, if you're a farmer and just needs a, a dozer to go clear a tree row, you know, every six months or something, they're going to fire it up and use it for a few hours. That's a whole different subcategory. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and as far as like a golden era of machinery pretty much like the 60s and 70s, I'd say, even up into the 80s. They're darn reliable machines. There's very little to go wrong with them. They're very, very simple. And at that point, too, they were also getting to the point where they were productive. Whereas you go back into the 50s and 60s, the machinery back then, you could still move a lot of dirt with it, but it, it's a workout. You're going to wear yourself out on that thing all day, every day. Mm. Um, and you start to get into parts availability issues when you go back that far. Now in the seventies and eighties, you can still get parts for most of that stuff, depending on the brand. Now that's where brand does come into a bit, Like Caterpillar is the best dealer network parts availability in the industry. Hands down. Um, they're, they're crazy what they still inventory parts for. Hmm. Um, so like I, I just picked up a Caterpillar D4 the other day. It's from like the fifties and there's very few parts that you can't go to cat and get brand new for that thing still. Wow. They're still making parts for it. In other words. It, and it's because that there's so many of those machines still out there in like the third world countries that are still running and operating that they, 
they still keep making the parts for them. Amazing. And, okay, so Caterpillar would would be maybe on top for that reason, at least in terms of older. Equipment. I'd say for that reason and that reason only. Okay. Now, Cat Dozers, I would just happen to be my favorite. They do make a very good dozer, but there are some other close competitors out there. But when you start getting into excavators, skid steers, graders, not that I know all that much about graders, but there's just everybody has a leg up in a certain area and maybe not in others. So it's it's really depends on how you're using the machinery because a guy that does clearing mm-hmm. with an excavator or a dozer might not be the same as a guy that does grading with it, an excavator or a dozer. Yeah. So there's pros and cons to everything. These days, machines are all pretty much neck and neck, except for the creature comforts. And that's where you get the separation in price at. So you get the the cheaper brands just don't have all the fancy bells and whistles that the super high-end Mercedes of equipment will have. So it's, and just like cars, when you get into today, cars aren't as reliable with all their electronics and gizmos that they used to be back in the 60s. But do they run better? Yes, at the end of the day, they run better. They mm-hmm. technically last longer, but things just aren't built to that same heavy spec that they used to be because engineers will tell you they design things to be just as strong as required, and that's it. And it's only supposed to last so long, too, because you look at your 1960 GE refrigerator that's still running, and you can't buy a refrigerator today that lasts 10 years. Right. So the companies back then built everything to last and now they don't want it to because they realize they make more money selling you a new one. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so you, you've built a collection of older equipment and or maybe it's not even older, but all sorts of equipment, some of it older. And for example, you're, you've been restoring a grader you mentioned, and it looks pretty beautiful. I'm, I'm not up to date on if it's done or what yet, but I mean, I saw the video with the new paint job popped on my feed the other day and I was like, Oh wow. That one, that one got a whole, new paint job. So in terms of restoration and where I'm coming from with this, I bought a skid steer a year ago, an older one, kind of for the same like mindset you had, not particular to build a dirt bike track, although I probably will because I got (laughs) three boys and three acres. So, um, but anyways, we got a bunch of projects around here and possibly a construction project, but it's kind of beat up and it looks a lot worse than it is. So um, talk about, um, restoring these things. Do you have the mindset? Like, basically it's not worth it unless you're totally taking it apart. Every nut and bolt basically like looks kind of don't, don't stress about it. Just let them get to work. What caused you to kind of break that one down and all the way to a paint job and new tires and everything. Maybe just talk about that project a little bit. Yeah. I always say paint doesn't make them run. So, uh, I'm not usually the meticulously taking care of things guy. I usually just fix things enough to use them. Um, because for what I do, that's fine. Now, if you're going to go out on a job site every day and you want that equipment to, you know, have your name on the side of it, then yeah, I agree that it probably should look a little tidier and not look like a worn out piece of crap that's leaking oil all over somebody's yard. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's the grader just happened to go that far because it was one of those, well, while I'm in here kind of things, you know, I took the engine out because the clutch was bad and, uh, I, I pulled the engine and it was kind of a pain to do. So I was like, you know what? This thing looks like crap. I think maybe I'll spray bomb it while I got it apart. And I painted the engine up and I was ready to put the engine back in. And I looked at it and I was like, well, before I put the engine in, I might as well spray the engine compartment area because you can't get into these nooks and crannies with the engine in there. And then I started really looking around and I was like, well, all the hydraulic lines need replaced. All these tires are bad. I was like, ugh you know what? It's a cool machine. I think I want to keep it. I want to use this thing around here. It's going to be nice to have. So I just set into to wire wheeling and about halfway through wire wheeling, I was like, I should have just sandblasted the whole thing and been really done it right from yeah. the beginning. But I was already committed and had 20 hours in wire wheeling. So yeah. I figured just finish it out and do the best we can with what we got. So uh, yeah, I actually just got it back together here last week and took it to its first show. So it is an antique. I do like to get into these antique equipment shows with it, but, uh, I'm wow. editing the video right behind you right now. Cool. I'm, I'm doing the, uh, the edit on that project. So we'll be finishing that up and show oh, it. Soon. I can't wait to see it. So it's a done deal and it's driving and you could put it to work if you wanted to scratch the paint. <laughs> no. Oh yeah. I'm, it's, I'm never going to be that person that fixes something to the point where I'm afraid to use it. Yeah. If I fix it, it's going to get used. That's the whole point. These machines like to work. They don't like to just sit around. Yeah. So. And they, they look so much more natural. I went to the world of concrete a year ago, uh, last winter 
and it was amazing. You got I don't know if you ever gone to one of those trade shows, but it's worth it just for the experience of seeing so much brand new equipment in one building. And yeah. it's a little weird seeing equipment that shiny and new and like <laughs> spotless. It's really yeah. weird. It feels it's neat, it, but it's different. In other words, nothing looks better than a, a piece of equipment that's like working. <laughs> and um, I'm sure you'll, like I said, you got you got enough chores for that one that I, it makes sense that it'll have a. Yeah, I had the I had the blade shining by the end of the day, so I felt good about that. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'd rather see them working too. And, and there's some beautiful people, or there's some beautiful restorations I've seen people do amazing jobs, and I God knows the time that they've put into them. But yeah. At the end of the day, what goods it do you just taking up room in your shop? You know, you might as well use the thing and get something out of it. Yeah. Even if it is pretty, you know. It's, well, I think that the um, the car guys have figured it out because it seems like there's a style of car restorations right now, like with, you know, muscle cars or whatever, where they will restore the car, you know, rotisserie perfect, and then put like a patina paint job on it to make it look like it's not as perfect. And yeah. I know that's a little phony, but to me that's like the way those cars should kind of look because they are old and mm. if they're you know hot rod and they should you know have some dings and nicks on them so i'm not sure. opposed to that and, and equipment the same way once like you're greater in probably five years it's gonna look like wow that's things really nice you know the 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 shiny um paint job will fade just enough to make it look yeah. like just really cool instead of like what oh, i wonder if that runs it'll be like no that thing is um working every day or whatever the the nice thing about equipment versus cars is that it's a lot harder to bang them up and make them look like that so as long as you're not uh being a wild man and just doing stupid stuff with it yeah you shouldn't really ding it up like a car you know you get a rock chip in it and right. it's really a detriment to a classic car but yeah you know a piece of equipment it's a whole different thing yeah so um so on my skid steer um it's it's from it's 1994 so 30 years old or um so and i think all the most of the hydraulic hoses are original or at least they're like all cracked and dried out do is that okay just to like wait till they break or should i kind of go through it and replace all those just knowing that they're that old it's different schools of thinking i'm i'm generally that way where i'll let them go if i see when i when i revive a piece of equipment now i've done enough to realize that like especially the bigger pieces of equipment, you'll look at some of these lines and the moment you start moving them, they've been sitting in one spot for 20 years or something. You start moving them around. They do not like that. Uh. Um, so it, it depends on where they're at, what size line it is, how much fluid are you going to lose whenever this thing ruptures? Oh. So some of the bigger equipment, I've replaced them just because I'm looking at them going, that ain't going to last very long. And when it blows, it's going to make a one hell of a mess. Yes. B it's going to be, you're going to lose 50 gallons worth of fluid. <laughs> before you can even shut the machine off yeah. so uh but the hoses are expensive so i mean you hate to replace something that might last you for another five years you don't know yeah yeah okay well that's that's a good way that's good to know that people have to there's different schools of thought on that because yeah i mean the, there's other people that'll tell you i'm dead wrong and that you should replace them all if they look like they're suspicious at all yeah but, and and you know, an excavator that's lifting something over top of people, not that you should ever do that, but it does happen on job sites where you're working around people, yeah. you know, and, and if a line blows, you could swing over and kill somebody or something. Yeah. Whole different line of thought on something like that yeah. too. But if you're working like I do, usually by yourself, it's not that big a deal. Yeah. You and know, I, I conscious, don't get underneath any suspended load, stuff like that. It's, yeah. You know, and I'm sure that like the contractors who are listening are screaming for them you know, the, having that fail in the middle of a job is a much different situation than me exactly. having it blow up in my backyard where, you yeah. know, like, yeah, if no you're not at deal. a customer's house and you're not under pressure and you need the thing right now, then yeah. it's not, to me, it's not worth redoing them unless they're like super, super bad. I mean, and that just comes with looking at enough of them when they failed and knowing how bad it was before it failed. Yeah. So there's the rubber coating on the outside that really doesn't do diddly except keep the moisture and sunlight off of the core on the inside. Oh. So when you get down to that braided core, if it's still shiny and looks pliable and like it's not corroded and going to break, <clears throat> you're probably okay. But I've seen plenty of them that coating has been gone off the outside for so long that now that braided steel core is all rusted and there's broken wires hanging out of it everywhere. Those know. are the ones that are like, that's on its last legs. Okay. You know, you okay. Well, that's good to know. And go. Yeah. 
Um, any big projects you got coming up that you haven't, that you could, uh, tease a little bit on your channel, anything coming down the pipeline that you're excited about? Well, we started kind of talking about the rat rod thing with cars. I'm, there's kind of a couple different pieces of equipment. I've been toying the idea of doing something kind of along those lines, but oh, more cool. equipment. So something that doesn't necessarily make sense for a job, but you know, something just cool. Just that that's the great thing about YouTube is now I have, I can justify spending money on something that doesn't yeah. really do anything in the end. It's just good entertainment value. Yeah. But, what? Uh, and longtime viewers on my channel will know that I have plenty of projects to keep me busy for quite a while. <laughs> so I got a new shop being built and uh, I've got a couple trucks I'm going to get going first. I got an old Jeep. So yeah. a lot of stuff that's been kind of in the works. I'm just waiting for this shop to get done and that'll really expedite the process. Yeah, I, I saw the dirt work uh, video on the shop, but tell, tell us about that a little bit. Is that is this shop kind of designed with making videos in mind and what else, what other features or upgrades does this have that you're... Um, your other shop, which by the way, your other shop's super cool. I, I don't know if you kind of, you. if you built that, those art, those trusses, or if you kind of did that whole thing, or if that's, I don't know, but I, I, I love everything about that. So yeah, I had a shipping container just because they're a great way to store things and keep them out of the elements. Plus like a big thing out of my place is mice. You know, you're in the middle of the woods. There's mice out there, whether you think there is or not, they yeah. get into everything yeah to this day if i start up a piece of equipment that's been sitting for a while i usually can watch around and watch mice scurry out of it <sighs> somewhere so they're always in there stinkers um so this the shipping containers are a great way you can keep things away from those little buggers and uh not be chewing on stuff so i bought one and then i bought a building kit off of a buddy of mine that that, that roof that's over the containers is was actually supposed to be a freestanding building kit oh and I got it off of him. He had torn it down from the guy that put it up new and he was going to put it up and never did. So I made a deal with him on it and uh, I was going to put it up by itself. And then one of my buddies one day was like, you already got the one container. Why don't you just get another one? I'm sure you need more storage anyways. And then put the roof between them. And I was like, you know what? That's not a bad idea. So yeah. what we ended up doing and uh, yeah, that's been a, quite a popular thing to do. I've actually seen those pop up in a lot of places and mm -hmm. I'm not the first person to do it, but you know, it's, I probably, advertise the best for it i guess yeah i haven't seen any more popular videos of doing well bang it. for the buck you know for shop you have storage and covered space and a big open like you know no post as big as yep. your lid is so it's bang for the buck got to be pretty good and yeah there was a guy um who was selling i did a, a shipping container project a while ago and he had a product that was like a, a big rounded arch and they were vinyl yeah. or pvc or something i can't remember they're pretty neat, but yours jumped out at me because it's going to last longer. <laughs> yeah, there's a local company here that does those structures like that. And he uh, he just did one right along the highway now. So everybody's seeing it. They got two containers and they put the big hoop over top yeah. of it. And it, it's a great way to store hay or big equipment and stuff like that. But being out in the woods, that, that vinyl is not going to hold up the tree branches and all that exactly. stuff. So, um, yeah, I like what I did there. Um, might build another one of those in the future. But bang for the buck, it's awesome because you got... I got 30 by 40 underneath the roof and then the containers are nine and a half foot tall, eight foot wide, 40 foot long. So that's a lot of good dry storage. Yep. That's a lot of storage and it's very secure and yeah, people yeah, don't realize right how, porch. they're just big in there. You know, you can build, I mean, well, people do realize, I don't know what I'm talking about, but they're, they're big. <laughs> you know, you could, you could live yeah. in one. People do. It's there. Yeah, people do. And the cool thing about them is they're so modular and you can just build, it's like a big block set you had when you were a kid, you yeah. know, as long as you have the money to keep buying containers, you can keep stacking them and doing whatever yeah. you want. You can stack those things like 10 high or something, yeah. maybe more. Well, the money is the key because the prices, they've come up a lot. When I bought a bunch of them, I paid yeah. like 3000 bucks a piece and we checked a year or two ago and they, they were like $7,000, something, they, they, the price had gone way up. I don't know where they are right now, but I don't, I don't know if it's quite the budget solution it was back then yeah, i don't know maybe it still is maybe it's just stealing generals up i think i paid two thousand and twenty two hundred for the two that i have and wow. that was with tax delivered everything See, that, that you can't not beat that no you can't go buy a little shed from like home depot for two thousand no. dollars that's amazing let alone a, a big 40 foot steel bunker basically yeah it's done doors yeah. hinges locks it's watertight done. you know nothing watertight so. um so what about the new shop what's that going to be like uh, the new shop is going to be 40 by 80 under roof and 40 by 60 of it. I'm going to enclose and have it a nice real heated shop. I'm, gonna, I'm doing it right. I figured I'm going to spend the money now and yep. have a good workspace to enjoy the rest of my life. Cause I talked to so many old timers that 
just get their shop that they wanted by the time they're 70 you yeah. know, and they're really slowing down and they can't use it anymore. Oh, so genius. Yeah. I, yeah, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure why well, I might as well enjoy this thing. Yep. So I figure I spend the money now I'm putting in heated floors, doing good insulation, you know, electric fans. I might even air condition it. Yeah. We're, we'll see how far I go. But uh, the big thing I'm excited about is I left provisions in the floor to put in a rail crane from end to end. So messing oh. with heavy equipment, that's going to be a lifesaver. Oh, that's going to change in the big everything. Places I've worked like the machine shops, you have those things everywhere and really just spoil you. Yeah. Once you have a crane at your disposal, you don't ever want to be without one. So, yeah, that would just change everything with working on heavy equipment, wouldn't it? Instead of like having yeah. to Jimmy rig and come up with some contraption every time it's just, it comes in from the sky instantly. Yep. Yeah, it's a big, big, big life changer. So, so wow. So, are you going to be doing to videos out of there? Building. What's are that? you building like a studio there to edit out I'm of it? Build, I don't know if it's going to happen right away, but I'm going to build some sort of mezzanine in it. And I think that's where I'd like to have a little studio so you can sit there and look down over, over top yeah. all the projects and everything as things going on. But, um, yeah, it's one of those things that you, the plans change so fast. And, and I got to where I'm at. And it, I'd never planned to be, I'd actually been planning this shop since way before YouTube. So yeah. YouTube just made it viable. Now I was able to justify spending the money on it and doing it so I can expedite my production of projects and videos and all that. So, yeah, exactly. Um, and you've been, you've been working in enough shops and environments now, like you said, you've probably been visualizing and thinking like, okay, this, uh, what would be ideal for me? And now it's, yeah. it's the time has come, huh? And, and nothing's revolutionary about the shop that I'm going to build. It's just a pretty standard shop, but it's it's just going to change what I do so drastically that it should, should yeah. <laughs> help me get things done so much faster. Yeah. Well, that is too cool. So obviously we'll link to your YouTube channel and, and I'll even probably try to find some of the videos that we mentioned um, and link to them. In fact, the, the foundation, I don't know if there's more videos about the shop on your channel, but the foundation or the dirt work is, has been done and that's been shared, right? Yeah, no, the, they haven't put up the shell yet. I'm waiting on that. Supposedly before the end of June, they're supposed to come put up the shell. So we'll see. Um, the weather has just been killing me in the spring here, trying to get all the dirt move. Yeah. Between raindrops here in Pennsylvania, it doesn't seem like it ever wants to quit raining. It's raining today. So Weird. We, we've actually had a really wet spring also, and I, everybody's kind of like, what is going on? For us, that's good because maybe the fire season won't be as scary. But yeah. it's definitely annoying for people who are trying to build because building season is right now. And yeah. actually, like my dad's a concrete guy, Dustin, who our audience knows. I bumped into him the other day, and he was saying the same thing. He's like, "I should be pouring concrete right now, but uh, it's kind of tough." <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, I've been been out your way. Unfortunately, it's one of the places I'd like to travel, but the uh, the ground out there looks like it's a little better than ours for water absorption. Ours is extremely filled with clay. There's not a lot of rock to it, so it. It, it holds water like crazy. And if you oh. integrate the water into the clay, then it just turns to this big pump and mess. And it's, it's not a good time for building. Oh, so. wow. So what do you guys do with water on like a construction site? Just send it to a, like a catch basin or something? Yeah. I mean, the big thing when you're clearing an area is you try to set it up to not hold water. And if you can keep it from holding water, then you're usually ahead of the game. But huh. any material that's wet and it's going to take a long time to dry, uh, you just cut it off and keep cutting down till you find something hard and wow. build on top of that. You don't really want to build on anything that's remotely questionable. And that's why I was really lucky putting in the dirt for the shop that I'm doing. I struck a vein of good shale material on my own property. So I didn't have to truck anything in. I was able to just bring it oh. from one end of the property to the other. And yeah. that oh. saved me a ton of money. I probably would have ended up having like another 20 or 30 grand wrapped up and putting in fill if I had to pay for it to get hauled in. Wow. Yeah, that is lucky. Jeez. Sometimes yeah. it goes your way, huh? It's like usually those it things, it's like always like, oh, of course, but nice to have one one for the good guys. <laughs> yeah, you ain't kidding. Our soil is good here. And actually on my property in particular, um, the drainage is fine. Actually, the drainage is good. Um, but the interesting thing is I'm, I'm right next to a river, not on the property, but in the area. And mm -hmm. I don't know, 100,000 years ago, the river must have been going right over my house because you stick a shovel in the ground and you're hitting river rocks they're river round rock. they're smooth yep. and you can just see like oh wow this is the ancient I, river rapid <laughs> right yeah. here and and I so, drainage yeah yeah exactly so the drain the water it'll it rains a lot but it you don't see standing water everywhere it kind of just um absorbs and then 
you know, it goes to the river. So, yeah, my property's so flat that until summertime, I'll have standing water over, I don't know, a third of my property and just oh, have some standing water on it. Oh, man. Yeah. And that's not usually a big problem in our area, but just because mine's so flat and it's just yeah. the way it lays, it just hangs in there. So. That's probably with heavy equipment. That's probably quite annoying because you're <laughs> sinking oh, and yeah, making yeah, ruts and that's mess. probably really I, not fun. No, I try to try to not make any moves that I don't have to off, <laughs> off of the improved surfaces unless it's dry. Yeah. So. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. Um, and we'll link to your YouTube channel and I can't recommend people watch it enough. I don't know what it is about heavy equipment and repairing it. It, it would, you would think if you just told like the average man on the street, you'd think it was like the most boring thing in the world. <laughs> it's not, I, I don't know what it is about it. it it's satisfying. It's like, it's interesting because you never see it. There's just something about watching equipment and watching equipment get repaired that is extremely watchable and, and you're doing it right. So I don't know, maybe you have some insight on what that is, why it is that way, but it just people, is. People ask me for tips all the time on how to be successful at YouTube. And I really, if I had any tips, I would share them because I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm just out here in the dark yeah. and uh, figuring it out, but I'm glad to hear that it's enjoyable to watch. I enjoy doing it. So uh, it's actually made me a better mechanic for it and uh, a little more patient because it used to be when the camera was off or there wasn't a camera around, things didn't go my way. I'd start yelling <laughs> and throwing wrenches and everything else. And now <laughs> I'm just like, mm, yeah. got to find my Zen here. Yeah. And, uh, well, people so. also should realize it is watchable and fun, but I'm sure a lot of the, like the most annoying parts, you know, you spend like an hour trying to bust one nut free. You don't, they're not, you're, they're not watching that whole annoying part. No, so you kind yeah, of, in a video, I, you get to watch the very best part of being a mechanic, yeah. you, which you, is literally nothing but the progress yeah. and the enjoyable parts. So yeah, for me, it's like I would drop a screw it. in the dirt and then spend an hour like on my hands and knees looking for it in the dirt. That's like <laughs> generally what being a mechanic is in my life. Yeah, so. that's exactly how it is. Laying in puddles of oil and mud, trying to look into places that yeah, you know, it's miserable most of the time, but I enjoy it at the end of the day for some reason. So it's awesome. All right, Matt. Well, we'll link to your stuff. We'll let you go. Have a great one and can't wait to see what you come up with next, especially the shop and some of this, uh, like you said, the equipment you got coming, the rat rod and these types of things. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. It's good talking to you. All right.